0: Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. Now, last time I was at a gathering like this talking about philanthropy, I gave away $20,000 in cash to the audience (laughs) to figure out what to do with. That's not going to happen tonight. (laughs) But if it was, the way to do it would be... uh, Make it $2 million in cash, lock the doors, turn off the exit signs. And nobody leaves until we figure out what to do with it. Take a little visit to that frame of thinking. And you've got a window into the new philanthropy. Um, I have this T-shirt on, which harkens back to coevolution days. And probably not everybody can read it. Um, it's sort of relevant. It says in a community regulated only by laws of demand and supply, but protected from open violence, the persons who become rich are, generally speaking, industrious, resolute, proud, covetous, prompt, methodical, sensible, unimaginative, insensitive, and ignorant. The persons who remain poor are the entirely foolish, the entirely wise, the idle, the reckless, the humble, the thoughtful, the dull, the imaginative, the sensitive, the well-informed, the improvident, the irregularly and impulsively wicked, the clumsy knave, the open thief, and the entirely merciful, just, and godly person. <laughs> that was said by Britain, by John, and said because he always spoke a lot, John Ruskin in 1860. In Britain, he was talking about the world he knew, which was, community regulated only by laws of demand and supply, as he called it. He wasn't aware that by then, beginningly in the U.S. West, uh, where there was communities before there were really cities, a form of philanthropy was starting to take shape. By the end of that century, uh, people like Richard Rockefeller's great-grandfather would basically invent modern philanthropy as an American invention. And it keeps being reinvented. And the person here to bring us up to date is one who knows more about it than anybody. Captain Fulton.
1: I've known Stuart for a while now. I didn't know that he was guilty of such hyperbole. Um, it is wonderful to be here with so many friends uh, that I know are sitting out there uh, and to take advantage of Stewart's offer to talk about what I've learned in the last few years. Um, I've had the privilege, starting at GBN, uh, Global Business Network, that Stewart helped found uh, since about 1998, to do a lot of work with new philanthropists, uh, building on many years of, of uh, interest in the field myself grew up in a wonderful philanthropic family, so I've been thinking hard about philanthropy for a long time. Uh, And um, it's going to be great fun to um, share the stage with Larry and with Richard. What we're going to do is I'm going to speak a little bit. I get to ask them a question first and then they're going to ask me questions and we're going to take your questions and have have an exchange. Um, I do want to start um, with Stuart, who has had such a, a powerful uh, impact on me, both directly and indirectly, for reasons that he will know. Uh, and I want to start with uh, one of my favorite quotes from him for the purposes of tonight. I did burst out laughing when I read this in the clock of the long now uh, about a week ago when, when he said um, the great problem with the future is that we die there. Um, And it made me realize that the long-now seminars, most of them are have not been about things that are personal and that this is a night where we can open some new terrain because ultimately, as Stuart suggests, um, it's difficult to get serious about long-term responsibility unless it gets personal. Uh, Tonight is about uh, what it is that normal, mortal individuals using the resources at our disposal can do to look out for the future. Uh, It's about one of the most fascinating stories I think on the planet today, which is about the new philanthropy, and it's about the battle for the soul and the direction of the new philanthropy. And yes, it's about Bill Gates and Larry Brilliant and Bill Clinton and a lot of celebrity people that many of you have heard of, but I also want to suggest that it's about all of us for reasons that I hope will be clear uh, by the time that we finish tonight. Um, In order to talk about the new philanthropy, though, we have to first talk about philanthropy, which is, of course, uh, not at all new. Uh, The the dictionary definition talks about love of humankind, and you will notice that it doesn't talk about money at all. Um, One of the things that's interesting about philanthropy and, and, and something I want to encourage you to think about is that Philanthropy is, can be about giving of your time, it can be giving about giving of knowledge, it can be about know-how, it can be about sharing your networks, as well as money. Uh, and in many, many cultures, of course, the word philanthropy is, would never be used. It's just giving, and it's as old as humankind. Um, now, of course, we are in, a, in an era when philanthropy is being reinvented, and it is a new era, and that is not Hype. Um, the news, not the deeper news, of course, is the is the philanthropy that's taking place, and is it is on many magazine covers and getting a lot of attention in the in the media. Um, and and what I want to do is talk to you about uh, some of the reasons that that new philanthropy is getting created, some of the things that I think are most interesting about it for a bit. And and talk about the need for it and talk about what, what it will take for that philanthropy to be great, because the fact that it's happening so far does not mean that it's actually going to make a lot of difference. Um, so the the place that I want to start is to sort of say, why? Why is it that we are in this new era? What's interesting is, if you look, um, philanthropy was modern philanthropy was invented in the United States 100 years ago. And if you look at any of these factors up here, the new technology and new money and and the sort of new zeitgeist in in terms of of the intellectual uh, ideas in the culture, new leaders, uh, new rules, new new tax laws, that kind of thing. Um, What's amazing about today is that all of these things are true. Any one of them could change and has changed philanthropy in the past. They were true 100 years ago, many of them, and they're true again. And we are at a real turning point uh, for philanthropy, and what I think is really important to understand is that the story is just beginning. It's it's really very very new. Um, and as I say, I want to tell you about some of the things that I think are are most most interesting from the body of work that my colleagues Andrew Blau and Gabriel Casper uh, and I have done. Um, the um, the first thing to draw your attention to is is in fact the the most wealthy, right? And that is of course a, a change we know is underway for a lot of reasons. If, if you look at this chart, back in 1982, there were 13 billionaires in the Forbes 400. There were just in the most recent uh, cover last week, last month, 400. When I first started essentially working and covering the, the future of philanthropy, there were half that many, and that was in 1998. Um, and, and it goes beyond that between 2000 and 2004, the number of households with a net worth of 100 million or more, 100 million or more in the U.S., rose from 7,000 to 10,000 um, in just the last those three years. Now, what that means is that large philanthropy, philanthropy that is done often in institutions or in large gifts, is is growing. And you can and and what is important is that a lot of that money is still on the sidelines, um, as Warren Buffett's was until very recently. Uh, and uh, it's on the sidelines, it's waiting, it's watching, it hasn't come in, and if even 10% of those people start great new foundations, philanthropy will be, the face of philanthropy will be extraordinarily changed in this country and in the world. Um, It's already starting. This is the growth in large foundations in in the U.S., Um, and just look what's happened um, just just very recently. There are now... 50 U.S. foundations with assets of a billion dollars. 30 of them give away $100 million each year. The Gates Foundation alone gives away $1.5 billion and is on its way by 2009 to giving away $3 billion a year. That means the Gates Foundation will give away 10% of all foundation giving in the U.S. There's never been private giving on this scale before. Now, you can argue that it may not be a good thing, um, and many people do, uh, maybe an excuse for government to withdraw uh, in some ways. But um, it's nevertheless is happening. And it's also a global phenomenon. Um, these are just, just a, a smattering of a map of millionaires across the world. Uh, the, the richest person of Chinese descent, the Hong Kong billionaire Li ka uh just announced a $6 billion donation to his private foundation. And that's a third, only a third of his wealth um those announcements are coming around the world now so what's happening is a shift from east to west in us philanthropy it's dispersing across the the world it's not all happening in foundations um, and so the scale of it is is really is really quite something um, so what's even more interesting is where the money's coming from if if you just look at this a, this is some work some research we did recently in 1957 When uh, Fortune magazine, this is from a story in Fortune magazine um, uh, on on wealthy in the United States, more than half of the richest people in the country had their wealth from inheritance. Um, And oil was the next. And you'll notice that high tech and finance, there was essentially none. If you fast forward to 1985, it starts to change. But look at this. In 19... uh, 2005, inheritance was down to 7%. This is, again, in the Forbes 400. Oil is 3%, but high tech is up to 13% and finance at 17% of the great fortunes. There's also, we also have some very interesting charts on age uh, because, of course, people are getting younger. Um, And that's, you know, part of the sort of structural shift in the knowledge economy. But what's interesting about that is the the change in the zeitgeist that then happens in the, the sort of, uh, bringing the tech culture to philanthropy, which I think through uh, via Yards and through um, Google is one of the most obvious places that's happening. The, uh, what, what happens is that if you think about some of the aspects of high tech culture, the sort of speed, the uh, rapid prototyping, uh, the learning by doing, thinking big, the power of the individual, uh, the, the, uh, the, 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 ability to, um, quantify and measure things often, and that's true in finance as well. These things are all coming into philanthropy. And what's fascinating to watch is how, um, they are, they're correcting against the old philanthropy, many of the things of the old philanthropy in New York. And in, in some ways, they may be trying, may, may be starting to overcorrect, which may be something we may want to talk about. Uh, but it's fascinating to, to watch what's happening. It is a significant, uh, shift. Um, The other thing that's happening is is the use of of markets and investing, not just philanthropy. This is a forum that Skoll Foundation holds. Uh, Jeffrey Skoll, who was uh, one of the the first president of of eBay's foundation, works on social entrepreneurship. And this was this year they worked on looking at social capital markets. There are lots of people starting to talk about, think about a marketplace for the capital that's in search of doing good, not just philanthropy, but also investment capital. And what's happening is a range of money from subsidized through loans, through investments for a range of purposes Uh, and a lot of experimentation starting to go on there. Uh, And then uh, I believe I saw David Banks out. David Banks put that story for The Wall Street Journal He's out there in the audience. Um, On giving, giving while living is a a very interesting thing that's also changing. Got people who are younger. They want to give the money while they're away. It's not about setting something up in perpetuity and a very interesting question. For, for the long now and for long-term responsibility is, is it better to give to an urgent problem today uh, and try to fix something that could do damage in the long term or is it better to set up a long-term institution that will be there? Interestingly enough, George Soros had always said he would give all this money away in his lifetime, as did John D. Rockefeller, by the way. Um, and he's just recently changed his mind. It hasn't gotten much publicity. He's decided that he's going to, have his foundations go in perpetuity and he's gonna leave it open to what they do. He says he wants them to be able to be entrepreneurial and he can't possibly know what's gonna be needed after he dies. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an, interesting, an interesting shift for, for George. Now, I think all of this is interesting, but I have to tell you, I don't think it's nearly as interesting as the philanthropy for the rest of us. Um, most, uh, and, and actually, uh, I, I forgot, I wanted to say something about the Rockefeller Foundation, the old foundations, there's the new players But the old players are also changing. Rockefeller Foundation is almost 100 years old, is completely revamping itself, influenced not just by the new philanthropy, but by the changes in the world. Uh, And and they are now partnering in big ways with the Gates Foundation uh, and others. So I think we're going to see changes in the new big philanthropy. We're also going to see changes in the old philanthropy that we need to not lose sight of. And then what what I was going to say is I think all of that could actually be less important than the philanthropy for the rest of us Um, most giving is from individuals most people don't realize that because so much attention goes to the big institutions three-quarters of the giving uh, comes from individuals and 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 we the the and I think this is kind of the Trojan horse really of of the changes in philanthropy Um, most of this money of course goes where to religious institutions but that's dropping the money that's going to universities and colleges and schools is flat. Um, arts institutions are starting to struggle more. And so there's some interesting, there's some interesting shifts here. Let's look at what's, at what's happening. There's always been a uh, hundred years ago when philanthropy got, got changed um, and, and reinvented with the invention of the foundation form. And it, there was also the community foundation was invented. And we've done a number, a, a, a lot of work at, at Monitor and, and GBN about community foundations as well, which we think of it as, as as aggregated giving, putting putting a lot of smaller donations together. There's tremendous amount of potential in in this. There's 700 community foundations in America now. There are 1,500 around the world. Uh, the the World Bank has a program of, of of starting of helping to start these around the world. And uh, there are um, uh, Mexican town associations that um, don't just raise, you know, send money back to their families, but also send money to build schools in, in towns. Um, middle class and working class people are much more generous, actually, than wealthy people, not in the amount they give, but in the percentage of what they give. Um, and so when you put all that money together, it's actually, it actually adds up to, to a lot. And then if you move it forward and you add the um, and, and you add some other things to it, it gets very interesting. These are the people that I'm most interested in, in philanthropy today. I think of them as the people who are reorganizing philanthropy. They're the community foundations of the future. They're the people who raise smaller amounts of money, or the people who give wealthy people an alternative to a private foundation. Um, Acumen Fund is um, is is a venture is a venture fund that raises money, um, raises philanthropic money, and adds a lot of business intelligence to it and invests it in businesses in, in the developing world. Um, and at a moment when you need that, you need that patient capital, just like Muhammad Yunus needed it for Grameen Bank, you know, foundations put tens of millions of dollars into microfinance before it became uh, a, a real business. Um, and that's, that's Acumen. New Profit is, is leading the way for a whole generation of social entrepreneurs in America, helping them go from smaller organizations to larger organizations. Social Venture Partners, I think, has three or 400 people in, in, in coming together in, in uh, Seattle. Uh, the Women's Funding Network and, and Hispanics in and Philanthropy. There are a number of these groups. What they do is, is raise money from a lot of people and put it together against a, a single goal. So you you begin to get over the problem of uh, lots of small donations that that don't add up to things. And what it means is that somebody like me, who doesn't have time to do a lot of work on what I should give to, and I just am opening a lot of things, saying where should I give to this and that, it gives me a way to outsource the strategy, have an impact, larger impact, without um, having to you know, be part of some large institution. Um, These guys are, I I think of these as the mutual funds of philanthropy of the future. You know, it's just like you would never, many people would not try to pick stocks. Why would you try to pick, you know, individual organizations to give to? So what you have is a kind of venture capital, private equity capital, and mutual funds that are essentially developing philanthropy that I think will reorganize the philanthropy of of a lot of individuals. And then there's online giving, which is growing very rapidly. Network for get Good, one of the portals um, in online, uh, in 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 it, it facilitates online giving, just past the 100 million mark uh, for giving. Um, and and I think again, um, if you add technology to this notion of the brokers who are reorganizing things, what you get is these new philanthropic philanthropic marketplaces. Um, uh, Donors Choose is a place that allows people in schools to say they need something in school and the donor to go straight to the uh, you know, di- essentially disintermediated giving. Um, there, there, and then there are these marketplaces that are starting to be in India and Argentina and South Africa that use online and offline as a way, again, I think of, of organizing money and being the, the community foundations of the future. Um, so I'll make a prediction, Stuart. I'm not sure they'll take me up for it as a bet. Um, but I think that, that the large, one of the largest foundations in, t- in 2020 won't be, have been started by a rich person. So, open source philanthropic portal tops $1 billion in gifts, headline in 2020. Um, so, it, it, you know, you, we've got the new philanthropists who have a lot of money, and they're going to have a lot of impact. We have the old philanthropists who are changing and who are changing. who are feeling the pressure. The Ford Foundation is about to have a new president, uh, et cetera. And then we have the philanthropy of of the rest of us. Uh, And uh, one one that I am particularly interested in is Give India. And I think perhaps the the organization that that could be the one I just talked about in 2020 is Give India. This is their image, this is their model of having a, a charity exchange in the middle and building an entire civil society infrastructure around it to build a culture of giving in one of the largest countries in the world. They're just getting started Uh, And I think that that, um, they're they're entrepreneurial and they're going to really make a difference. Um, So the philanthropy um, is this story of the the newness. If you just kind of step back and say, so what really is new? I created this little picture for myself when I started doing this work um, of sort of looking at, so what was the the, the philanthropy of 10,000 years ago was this. Um, It was local. It was face-to-face. It was short-term. It was need that people had right there, face-to-face, that people helped each other out. And if you move through time and you look at the changes in the economy and things moving, people and changes in technology and being able to move outward into regions and nations, and you look at the the types of institutions that, that came into being, Um, Of course, patronage was a big was a a charity and patronage were a big part of philanthropy, especially for art. And then we had the invention of organized philanthropy, the the business of beneficence um, was what John D. Rockefeller called it uh, about 100 years ago. And what's happened now? It's just added everything on. We're now in a knowledge economy. It's all global. It's really about it's increasingly about networks that are technology enabled that that I think make make a lot of things possible it 's about um, whoever the f- most effective actor is, which isn 't necessarily the nonprofit and it's charity, organized philanthropy, and social investing so it 's much more complex. The choices are 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 much are much greater and i think what's what's interesting to think about here is that philanthropy for the long term is a modern creation. it may even be an unnatural act you know <laughs> um, in the sense that you know people give give to what the need is that you see in front of you um, that 's what charity is, but philanthropy for the longer term that engages people half a world away um, is something modern and, and again arguably un, un, not natural so these are some of the elements of promise of this this, this, this system that is emerging that builds on all the eras before it um, and and so you ask so what so what well. One so what is, of course, the problems are so much larger than philanthropy. All these numbers seem really big until you talk to Patty Stonecipher from Gates, and she'll tell you that um, actually they spend $400 million on trying to get kids ready for college, but the state of California spends $40 billion. So our monies are a drop in the bucket. We could spend down the endowment in one year and not have improved education just in the state of California. Most people who get into philanthropy in any big way realize this very quickly that it seems big and it seems great. It's very exciting, but actually it's it's small. So so we have to keep that in mind. And then the other problem, of course, is that the problems are growing as fast as these endowments and and philanthropies are or faster. Uh, I laughed out loud when I saw this cartoon in the New Yorker a couple of weeks ago. It says, good morning. You better sit down with the guy going and watching the TV. And um, it's, it's, you know, it is a very dark time in many ways. And uh, my friend Larry Brilliant gives an absolutely wonderful talk about the crises of our time that all of us need to uh, pay attention to. And philanthropy, you know, philanthropy can't take the role of government and it's not, doesn't have a scale of business. Um, but, there, but there is a role for it. And I would think arguably at this moment in the history of our civilization, it's not just a nice to have, it's a must have. Uh, and that's where you get into the real deeper news. Um, and I want to do that by um, uh, invoking Stuart again uh, in one of the models that many of you may have seen that the Long Now Foundation uses in The Clock of the Long Now in Stuart's book, and he calls it the, the pace layering. And it's about the different layers of civilization and that they change at different paces. So you have fashion changes the fastest, you have markets that change, um, and and a little bit faster on a quarterly basis. You get um, the the infrastructure, the the things, that, the the pipes, the schools, the the things that makes makes society work. Um, governance, culture, nature, each of them changes at a different pace. So the the fast gets the attention. As Stuart points out the slow has all the power. The whole combines the learning with contin- continuity, and but. And what that means is that when civilizations get a shock, then there's, a, there's a, a balancing, there's a way to absorb them. We're in the midst of one of those shocks today. Um, I don't think there's any question about it and it's planet wide and slowly, I think the nature of that is that the, is that the, the layers at the top and Kevin Kelly has also pointed at this out is their disruptive power is so great, they can now destroy our future. The top layers can destroy culture and nature and they're doing so. Um, And infrastructure and governance aren't doing their job very well. Uh, New Yorker uh, piece recently on water was about a failure of infrastructure facilitated by a failure of governance. Um, And there's much of that all around the world. It's the job of the infrastructure and the governance to represent the future to the present, Um, to invest in making people healthy and educating them, protecting them from random or intentional violence, Investing in the basic science that will improve life for all, to stand up to the abuse of power, and to create new solutions. Um, Now, a very interesting thing has happened is that the social sector supported by philanthropy has taken up the work of making sure that civilization is healthy. It's slowly becoming a new kind of infrastructure and governance. Um, The... It's stepping into the vacuum in the middle of this framework and looking out for the future. And this is very good news. Uh, And let's just give you a couple of examples. It may well be that Bill Clinton exercises more leadership in post his presidency than he did as president. I may say something about how kind of president he was, but uh, it's 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 about the leadership is now coming from different places um, and uh, there's a, uh, an interesting thing I just learned this week is that uh, Mo Ibrahim, who is the UK-based mobile phone op- entrepreneur born in Egypt, has, has just announced a $5 million prize aimed at fighting corruption that's richer than the Nobel Prize. Um, and, and what he wants to do is, is have Harvard rate the governance of 53 African countries so that when a president leaves, if he's served his country well, And he passes his power democratically to a successor. He can actually get a prize and pay for his life, and not have to be corrupt. It's a, you know, it's an interesting idea. It's a private philanthropist saying nobody else is stepping up. I'm going to. Uh, Another interesting example is George Soros. In 2002, started something called the Publish What You Pay campaign. They're now 300 NGOs worldwide involved in this. This is to counter the resource c- curse, the, repress, the, the repressive corrupt governments in so many poor but natural resource rich countries. Um, and so what, he, what this is to do is to get, it's a campaign to get oil and mining companies to disclose all the payments they make to governments. So it's a transparency play. That once those are disclosed, you can add them all up. You can actually see the payments that are going to any government that gives then a tool to civil society and citizens to to battle the battle the government. So what you see here is private citizens stepping up to play the role of infrastructure and and government. So this is happening all over the place. You know it's it's an explosion in in civil society. These numbers of between nineteen eighty and two thousand the number of nonprofits in Brazil went from less than five thousand to more than a million. Um, in this country the nonprofit sector employs more people than the federal government, 50 state governments combined. Um, Lester Salomon, who's one of the great uh, scholars of this field, you know, basically says that citizen organizations in this era is important as the rise of the nation state in the, in the 19th century. Um, the last time that, that we counted this, and we haven't counted it for a little bit, there were 119 new nonprofits and 11 new foundations started in the U.S. every day. Um, if you want to know why it's so hard to raise money, it's because there are more nonprofits being started than there are new foundations. Um, the numbers look like this. I mean, it's just going up and up and up and up. And the good news is that people are stepping up to the challenge. Uh, and the, um, this is a very interesting, the Grameen Bank winning a Nobel Prize um, made, made us take a check at this. Um, look at what's happened to the number of Nobel Prize winners who were NGOs in, in the last 100 years. In the last 10 years, four of them have been NGOs. Uh, the campaign to ban landmines, Doctors Without Borders, Wangari Maathai and the Greenbelt movement, and now the Gramming Bank. So philanthropy is a critical part of this emerging system of, of problem solving. And it's an absolutely critical lever in any system to have better solutions. And again, back at you, Stuart, um, I love this quote of Stewart's, nobody can save the world, but any of us can help set in motion a self-saving world. Um, and I would submit that that is the role of philanthropy, and that is the role that it's stepping up to today. Um, it may well be that long-term thinking is, is, is difficult and rare, but if our civilization survives another 10,000 years, it, it may be in part uh, because civil society and, and philanthropy backing it has really stepped up. Um, So if if my interpretation of Stewart's framework has any validity, validity, we've never had a greater need for philanthropy. It's an urgent requirement of our civilization. And it may be that um, it's an urgent requirement because the window open to deal with the problem I described here of the destruction of culture and nature won't be open forever. So there's a very interesting question about what is long-term responsibility? Is it doing something urgently now or is it setting up uh, things in, in, in perpetuity? Now, what I wanna do is shift gears for a second. Um, I've talked about the promise of the new philanthropy. I've talked about the, um, the need for it. Uh, and you know, But the truth is, of course, most philanthropy isn't, doesn't do this. Most philanthropy is, is not great philanthropy. So, what is it going to take to um, to change things and, and for the better? Uh, and I want to share a, a few thoughts with you. Uh, the body of work that we've done is, is is there. It's all on the web, and you can pick up a, a copy of our of our book outside. But I want I want to talk about what it will take for Ford View to be a hopeful one, um, and rather than a cynical and discouraging one. Um, I do feel hopeful that the, both the quality and quantity of philanthropy is going to grow in, in the next year and that one day we will look back on this time as a time where there was a significant shift in how people used resources imaginatively and <coughs> against the biggest issues of our time. I feel hopeful about this and I want to speak more personally about it again having said that the long now is, is about being personal. Um, because. It's going to be uh, because it depends on all of us taking responsibility, not just um, the people who are famous. And I believe today there's a tremendous hunger for this everywhere I go in the world, um, inside companies uh, that that we work with, inside um, uh, so many young people coming out of college and and graduate school, um, people who are. Uh, nearing the end of the careers that they're in who want to, who want to now make a more significant contribution. Um, there's, there's such hunger everywhere. Um, and it won't, it's not going to be about whether they're up to the challenge of this. It's about whether we're all up to it. Um, there is no such thing as philanthropy. There are only mortal, fallible individuals who give. Because, of course, philanthropy is entirely an a voluntary act can't tell anybody else what to do with their philanthropy. They can only tell themselves. Um, It happens, it happens inside. So the choices ahead are personal and they're individual. And importantly, they're no wrong choices uh, because they come from inside people. So what I wanna tell you just just for a couple of minutes is is what I think um, the questions that need to be asked uh, are. Of, of to do great philanthropy, whether, it's the, whether it takes place at the level of, of uh, the Gates Foundation or uh, when I go to my kitchen table to write my checks in December. The, and when I said I think that there's a battle for the soul and direction of the, of the new philanthropy, I think this is what it's about. So the, the first question is a question about direction, and it's about what. What challenges are we taking on? Um, are they just the ones that matter to us personally, the school that we went to, the people that we know, the community that we came from, um, or have we enlarged the circle of our empathy beyond that? Um, this is a map that I use for myself, um, uh, and I find it really helpful to literally just map what I give to. Um, most philanthropy is in the upper right corner. It's personal, local, regional. It's your church, community. Uh, your school, uh, it's shorter term or responsive. Um, The people down here in this corner, in the the bottom left-hand corner, who are in another country, who are trying to change something fundamental, can't find me. They can't ask me for money. And so one of the things that I do is challenge myself to find things to go and seek out against what I think the problems are uh, rather than just doing the easy thing of, of, of giving what, what comes to me. That means that, that decision-making philanthropy has to be connected to knowledge, and it isn't often. Um, the people who have the resources make the decisions, but, but without necessarily being connected to the people who have on the ground who have the knowledge about what the real need is. Um, so in order for there to be a new direction, we have to expand this circle of empathy. And I think that's one of the things that's been most impressive about Bill Gates. Whatever else you want to say about him, he went from his philanthropy being about computers and schools, which is something that he knew, to global public health. Uh, and um, that's, that's been very impressive. Uh, and a lot depends on how many other people, how many of the new philanthropists, the new large givers, as well as the rest of us, do the same the how the, the what question is intimately related to the second question, which is the how question and this is where I believe there 's a battle of a different kind going on that I think is more important even more important than the what it 's about strategy and it 's about soul because you can try to do great things that are important and significant and fail miserably at doing them um, if you 're not both smart and wise about how you do them so the question is Will philanthropy be smart and wise as well as full of good intentions? First, the smart part. Social change is not like business, as anybody here who's been involved in it knows. It's much harder and it takes a very long time. And the problems dwarf the efforts of even the largest actors. It's not about competition, it's about cooperation for the long term. It's about building collective will to deal with the, uh, the worst uh, challenges that we face. We need the best talent in the world with the appropriate resources to the task arrayed against problems for a very long time. Um, the problems that arrived, didn't arrive quickly, they won't go away quickly. Um, and uh, Danny Hillis actually, again, associated with Long Now, pointed out something brilliant. The the problems are impossible to think about if you think about them in two years' time frames. But if you think about solving something in a 50-year time frame, it changes everything. Now, the problem, of course, is that what I've just described very rarely happens in philanthropy. Um, You see a lot of three- to five-year initiatives, and then people get bored and go to the next new thing. You see funders tired of support, tiring of supporting the same institutions and all of us, you know, writing a check same year, every year after the same thing instead of rewarding success, um, moving to the next thing. You see people setting ambitious goals and then setting a budget that's completely insufficient to achieve those goals. This is the thing that drives me the most crazy. So people, you know, have a great big goal and then say, well, you know, here's $100,000 to do it or $500,000 to do it or, or whatever. You see people insisting that their funds be used for direct service and this is a particular disease of the new philanthropy while ignoring all the infrastructure and overhead that is necessary to provide that service. say, I just want my money to go to the people who need it. And you see funders looking with disdain at the efforts underway and saying we can do this better ourselves even when they're starting from scratch and have absolutely no knowledge and have made little effort to understand who the other players really are including the other funders. So this is the opposite, really, of the things that are needed. Um, It's it's as though almost people lose their brains when they leave the business where they made the money and come over to do philanthropy. So a lot depends on whether the new philanthropy gets smart, which means that it refuses to adopt the habits of the old philanthropy. An old philanthropy is fragmented and short term. The new philanthropy needs to be connected and patient. One of the most hopeful signs, again, at the Gates Foundation, 85% of their funding in global public health is in partnership. They got that really quickly. And indeed, Buffett's gift itself is a great example of that, I think, of combining efforts, not splitting them up. Um, Ironically, the best example of this kind of philanthropy in the past generation was from conservative foundations. This is a National Center for Responsive Philanthropy study of 79 conservative foundations who were focused and had a common agenda to change the basically the, the, the ideology of the country and they succeeded. They created an infrastructure of ideas and the means of communicating them. They built strong institutions through long term investments that they made over decades and they worked in concert with each other on a common agenda. It was stunning the impact that they had. Um, so. This quote is, however, what is happening, I think, in, in some of the areas of new philanthropy. I'm going to read it out loud. Um, I, it's going to take more than smart strategies um, to, to make a difference. And I, I ran across a, a, a man a couple of weeks ago who was working at one of the large new economy foundations, and he was just pulling his hair out. He said, we have lots of smart people but very little wisdom. We have no deep contextual understanding and experience. We often are isolated from the messy reality of the world, political and social and human. We have no tolerance for ambiguity. Um, When he said this, it crystallized for me um, that how much I believe that the success of the new philanthropy is going to come down to how quickly people learn. Stuart once wrote a book on how buildings learn. I think we're going to have to watch how philanthropists learn. Um, it it, it rang true for me, and it made me think, to put this in actually starker terms, imagine for a second if the civil rights movement were underway today. Um, And one of the great enduring achievements of the 20th century in, in America. Think about this ragtag bunch of people. They wouldn't be funded by many of today's new philanthropists. They didn't have a business plan or performance metrics. Their strategy was improvised month to month. Their relationships were messy with each other. And the whole thing was pretty chaotic. If you've ever read Taylor Branch's books, it's just stunning how chaotic it was. There was no plan. Um, betting on them took a leap of faith and it took caring and it took believing in them for a very long time. Somebody paid for those buses that people went to the March on Washington, in. right? There were some philanthropists who did that. But there's a, there's a zeitgeist today in, in the new philanthropy that I think has has a ways to go in terms of of wisdom. Um, great philanthropy is a rare combination of risk taking, empathy, stamina, and humility. I think that's a pretty good definition of wisdom. I think there's reason to be hopeful. There are signs of rapid learning happening and wisdom being acquired. But as my friend Sam Keane puts it, wisdom is never available on the secondhand market. That at least is advice I've been giving myself for 25 years. Um, so what in the end is great philanthropy in service of the long now, in service of long-term responsibility? I can do no better than share these words from Martin Luther King. I'm a southerner, so you have to forgive all the civil rights stuff. Um, changed my life in a lot of ways. Martin Luther King was not talking about Philanthropy. when he spoke in 1967 in a famous speech called Where Do We Go From Here? But he did talk about power, and here's what he said. Now, power properly understood is nothing but the ability to achieve purpose. And one of the great problems of history is that the concepts of love and power have usually been contrasted as opposites, polar opposites, so that love is identified with a resignation of power and power with a denial of love. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice, and justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. I, I could have just put that up and not talked at all. <laughs> um, so I have talked about the promise of the new philanthropy, all the changes that are underway, the size of it, the scope of it, the type of it, I've talked about the need for it. And I've talked about some of the choices about the what and how that need to be made for it to fulfill its promise. Because it's entirely possible that the new philanthropy will fail to live up to the legacy, to, to the legacy that it could leave. Um, I don't believe that that's gonna be the case. I've met too many of the wonderful people and we're about to meet some some of them on the stage who are leading the way. Um, but, the, but the advice I would give adds up to, it's, it's pretty simple, it's a, it, and it's a wish, not a bet, for the new philanthropy and for all of us to pick at least one difficult, complex thing or a great organization, stick with it, support it for a long time, have enough humility to accelerate our learning in the face of great complexity and join with others in doing it cooperatively these choices about what to do and how to do it are being made by tens of thousands of people all over the world today. That's why those numbers of NGOs are going up and they're being made by every person in this room. Each choice does matter because they are cumulative and someone sitting here. And this is something I will predict someone sitting here is going to do something quite extraordinary that you've not thought of yet that's gonna change the world. And maybe more than a few someone's. Because a better world is never gonna be created from the top down with some master plan. It's gonna be, it'll only emerge from the bottom up from the choices of creative and committed people. And these choices can now be connected in ways that were never before possible in human history. That's the reason I have so much hope. So thank you very much. So I think Larry and Richard are going to come up here. Is the screen going to come up? Thank you. So um, I promised them, Stuart said, um, I got to get my dominatrix going here. He said, Catherine, we work for you here tonight. Um, So he told me that I could start by asking these guys a question first. And uh, I want to ask them about what they've learned. Um, And Richard, you uh, we're born with philanthropy in your bloodstream <laughs> uh, and but you've had quite an extraordinary life yourself. Um, been involved with a number of organizations and you're now chair of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund and I'm just really curious. What do you know now that you didn't know when you were 25 about how to do this philanthropy game?
2: I think I may have learned as much tonight already as I learned in the rest of the time since I was 25. Uh, One of the things about growing up in the Rockefeller family is that it really is the water that you swim in. And for a long time, I think you can't see it. It's just there. It's the culture of my family. For whatever reason, Stuart asked me not that long ago, why is it? And other people have asked me, why is it that the Rockefellers stay involved with philanthropy? And I don't have. A very good answer for it. I don't know, other than that we had strong role models, and it's just what my my father is, David Rockefeller. He was involved with it uh, his entire life, and we were expected to be. And I don't know. We just we are. Somebody said it's in the DNA, but I know that I got pretty diluted DNA from John. I'm a fourth generation down from John D. So it can't just be that. Um, so. One thing I would say is that I've moved from a state of unreflectiveness about philanthropy. Probably that was where I was at age 25 through a number of experiences to a position where I really think about it quite a lot. And I have to say that that complicates my life in some ways. Philanthropy, when you just take it for granted that you're going to inherit some money and then you're going to give it away, you, you certainly... The, the precepts that I grew up with about trying to address root causes, that was my great grandfather's word for it and we call it strategic philanthropy now but that's a good thing and it's also good to give money for charity in your local community but that there is a continuum from charity to strategic philanthropy and you should think about where you are on that. Those the, you know, that, that came with the with the inheritance in a sense. Um, Richard, one yes, request
0: I've hit is to have the mic up a little closer to you. Oh, sorry.
2: It's just a little better sound, thanks. Yeah, put ears up in the back if you can't hear me. Okay. Have you heard what I've said so far? Oh, good, I, I don't wanna start over again. Um, anyway, uh, so uh, there's a lot of reflection uh, has come first through, uh, you mentioned a threshold foundation I had a discussion about it earlier and I was involved with that quite early on and it one of the things that that uh, engagement taught me a group of people called the donuts because it's a bunch of nuts with dough <laughs> um w- we did exercises in that group. About two-thirds of us had inherited wealth and about one-third uh, had made their own money, and there was a huge divide there, as you might imagine. But we all were encouraged to really think about that and, th- and feel about that, experience what the, em- the emotional impact of having money, of getting money given to you, of giving away money, that made an enormous difference in my life and taught me that there are, for everybody, tremendous uh, complexes that come with money, not the same for everybody. And if you do not know what those complexes are when you start out to give money, you're likely to do things through projection that really don't necessarily benefit. They're they're dealing with your own neuroses, in a sense, rather than benefiting the person that you're uh, giving the money to. So that was a very valuable lesson. Another thing I learned was that some of the the precepts, such as the continuum from charities to strategic giving, don't actually apply in the real world, and it's good to rethink that from time to time. That realization arose through my experience with Doctors Without Borders. I've chaired the U.S. Advisory Board of of Médecins Sans Frontières, MSF, uh, uh, for the past 17 years. And I loved it from the start because the people are so dedicated I'm a physician myself a family doc and I was in a bunch with a bunch of people who were doing what we were all trained to do but those of us who stay practicing in the US don't actually get to do it most of the time we end up being kind of I don't know functionaries more than real healers so I loved it from that standpoint but I was skeptical because from everything I had learned they were doing kind of charity care going over and providing directly for people rather than addressing root causes. Since 99, when we began treating, uh, and, and particularly starting in 2001, when MSF began providing antiretroviral therapy in the developing world, uh, <clears throat> it became clear to me that there's, there are blurred lines in there that you can provide what looks like charity care in ways that turn out to be remarkably strategic, so that we're the, all the experts in, in 1999 right through about four years ago were saying it's stupid to actually treat people with AIDS. You should, uh, w- what you should do instead is do prevention because you'll never be able to afford it. You'll never have the health infrastructure. You will develop resistance that then will come back to haunt us, etc., etc. Well, the idealists... Charity providers at MSF, in a sense, said, well, the heck with that. We cannot function on the ground pretending to treat these other conditions but not treat medically what we're seeing in front of us. So the prices of drugs are too high. We're going to do something about that. We'll, we'll not accept the assumptions about the infrastructure. We're going to build our own infrastructure and see what happens there. And indeed, we did that from 1999 to 2000 when the annual cost of antiretrovirals around the world was uh, $15,000 to $17,000 per person per year. Uh, We and other advocates managed to bring that price down to where it now is under $150 per person per year. All right. Well, for which I take no credit at all, but I love being associated with the organization that has helped do that. And we've shown that infrastructure in the developed world isn't necessary at all in the underdeveloped in the developing world, and that in fact uh, rates of adherence to medication regimes throughout Africa, and we have now got about 25 programs are better than they are in New York, about 90 uh, percent, and we do not get the resistance and we do get cooperation and where uh, all prevention efforts I'm going to end with this I want to turn this back over to you, prevention efforts had theretofore been uh, pretty much useless. People in developing countries with very high rates of HIV infection really would not look at the problem because it seemed so big and so hopeless, and problems that are too big are just not worth looking at at all. That's the way it feels to people. Once we started treating, the idea that there might be hope spread very rapidly through these First, the villages and then the larger societies. And people since then have been willing to look at what it takes to do good, reasonable prevention, screening, and so forth. So what looked like purely treating the symptom turned out to be essential to uh, the strategic approach to the entire problem. So I have other things that I've learned, but I think I'll stop there.
1: So Larry, been on the job now for what, eight months?
3: Six?
1: Six. Can you imagine what it would be like to what an amazing job and opportunity, but can you imagine the number of emails that come <laughs> in to there's never been a more visible I can't imagine it used to be people could start philanthropy and be under the radar. Can't you imagine being Google doing your philanthropy? You breathe and the world notices. So Larry, what's the question on your mind now after six months? Microphone. He's got one.
4: Yeah. Well, first of all, your presentation was phenomenal. Yeah. It's Thank really, you. really wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. So I did, I did one thing really smart. The first phone call that I made when I was hired was I called her. And I said, what do I do now? <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, it feels like, as I've seen all the old friends here in the room, we, we know each other from so many different walks of life, but we have all been here before. It really feels like that, that this room, the feeling in the room, the people that we know, uh, I've sort of been plucked out. It could have been any one of us here. So I'm channeling all of you, and that, it feels like that to me in a way I'm channeling our culture. It's an unusual position because we're in the midst of a huge cultural war. This election on Tuesday is part of a cultural war. Newt Gingrich said it was a cultural war. Bill Clinton represented a part of a cultural war. We really are. And the new philanthropy represents a little bit of the extension of that cultural war. And I've been thinking since I got in this job where do you go to find a, a guiding principle, a summum bonum, or some kind of a, a standard against which you judge what one does? Uh, I had uh, the great privilege of being on a stage uh, with Richard's cousin, Stephen Rockefeller, two weeks ago with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And his cousin is a real philosopher. He teaches philosophy. He has for 30 years. I'm an amateur philosopher. I was an undergraduate, but never made it beyond undergraduate. And we got to ask the Dalai Lama the questions that you'd all like to ask him. We got to get up on a stage, and I got to say, uh, Your Holiness, is there a hierarchy of suffering? And And if there is should that hierarchy inform the decisions that we make in philanthropy? And he wasn't prepped. We've we've been prepped. And he thought about it and he said, yes, there's a hierarchy of suffering and it should inform what you do in philanthropy because the person who is on the brink of starving to death The person whose illness will take their life away. The person who is the poorest. That is the person you should think about first in your philanthropy. It's the same thing Mahatma Gandhi said when he was asked by a young radical, can you give me something to protect me from making a mistake? And he answered, yes. I can give you a talisman A magic amulet that will protect you from ever making a mistake. Before you act, consider the poorest, the most humblest, the most wretched human being that you have ever seen in your life, and ask yourself Will the next act that I am contemplating benefit that person? If it will, you're safe. If it won't, think again. So I thought, all right, I'll go back to philosophy and I'll look at what I thought was, what I thought then were Maimonides' principles of charity. And I don't know how many of you, like me, mistakenly thought that the old saw to give a man a fish is not as high an act of charity as to teach that man to fish... I don't know how many of you thought that that was part of Maimonides' principles of charity, but it's not. And so if you Google give a man a fish, you'll find there's 600 charitable foundations that are named give a man a fish. (laughs) Now, it's very interesting because if you start off by thinking, well, if give a man or woman a fish... Is here and teach them to fish is here so they can have a livelihood. That's the beginning of a hierarchy of response. But given what we heard today, that in 40 years there won't be any more fish. <laughs> it, it it changes the way you think about that. And what if you gave someone the ability to fish, but there was no market? that they could then sell their fish or their neighbor couldn't grow any rice to swap with them so they could have a healthy diet or there was no export industry that allowed them to bring their fish to market so they could earn the goods and services they could educate their children. And you can start thinking like something other than you thought a philanthropist would think. And the way Google is structured I have the opportunity, and many of my colleagues are here with me, and we have the opportunity to think differently than the traditional philanthropy in the sense of making donations or grants. We can think like that. We can think that what we would like to do is to create 100,000 jobs in Africa. And what would that take? I, I was talking earlier with Richard that in the old days you might think if you have a hundred million dollars and you give that as philanthropy to help create jobs that's a great thing to do whereas if you were a businessman and you invested money and you lost money that would be a terrible thing to do but actually it's the opposite because if you wanted to put $100 million to use in Africa and you gave it as grants, you would then create dependency, you would create inflation in wages. But if you took a billion dollars and you invested it in Africa and you lost $100 million, you got back $900 million, You would have put $100 million to work But that billion dollars of investment would have created roads and schools and electricity and jobs that were sustainable and good and kids who could go to school. So what I've learned, I think, in the six months since i have coming, in the five months since you had that wonderful workshop for us to introduce us all to the world of philanthropy, what I've learned is that it's not the way I thought it was before. When all of us together months or years how many times we've all been together and we had a beer or we smoked something other than a cigarette and we said if only I had X dollars here's how I would change the world that changes a little bit when you're put in a position where now you really have X dollars and it's um, it's a very humbling experience there are no textbooks to go to There are few wise people to go and talk to. The challenges are enormous. The opportunity is staggering. It's very humbly. And I I just want to end end by saying one thing. We are all in it together. It's not the person who writes the check. It's not the person who has the 501c3. It's not the philanthropist. It's not the government. It's not the people who elect the government. We are now facing, as Catherine said, so many simultaneous crises, the crisis in the environment, the climate crisis, the staggering disparity between rich and poor to an extent that's never been seen before in the world. 3.5 billion people have cell phones. 3 billion people can't afford to place a single phone call. 1.2 billion people don't have enough water and can't consume enough calories to maintain their body weight. In India there are 300 million people who live on less than a dollar a day and they live in the shadows of Bombay where there are more billionaires than there are in New York City. There are 30 novel communicable diseases that have emerged in the last 30 years that come about because we've destroyed our rainforest, because we've eroded the green belt between animals and humans, because we raise more protein than ever before. Thirty years ago the population of China was one billion. Today it's one point three five billion, a thirty five percent growth rate. But thirty five years ago the population of chickens in China was twelve million and today it's fifteen billion. We have a chicken human interface problem. It should be no surprise that we're seeing diseases of animals that are jumping to humans. We're, we will face 10 years from now a crisis where instead of talking about fossil fuels, we'll be talking about fossil water. So these are not problems that are going to go away tomorrow. We're not going to solve those problems on this stage. Government's not going to solve these problems alone. Academicians are not going to solve them these problems alone. Your engaged minds and hearts are what's going to solve this problem. And we are literally all in this together. And I think that's what I've learned in the last six months.
0: Okay, before we get to... Before we get to good questions coming in from the audience, uh, I want to give uh, Richard you first and Larry uh, a shot at asking. You've seen Catherine's condensed version of her four hour presentation just now. Uh, What questions do you have
2: of her? Uh, Catherine, as a result of my own evolution of sort of going from unconsciousness to consciousness about Philanthropy. I've also thought about the thing that is at the root, at least of traditional philanthropy, which is money itself. And uh, there are many aspects of that to consider, obviously the cash economy, but also, as you mentioned, Larry, the disparity between rich and poor. One of the difficulties that I have with philanthropy The the philanthropy that everybody does, or hopefully everybody does, is not a problem for me so much, but the philanthropy by really wealthy people has a kind of built-in blind spot related to the unintended consequences of, A, the cash economy itself, but B, even more so, extreme wealth, great wealth, when one consults to works for wealthy people, whether in even when they're giving away their money, one is kind of tacitly saying that's okay to have all of that money in the first place. And I just wonder how you, because you spend a lot of your life in consulting to folks who have got a lot of money, how do you deal with that? And if you're able to not make it a blind spot for yourself or the, and particularly the inequalities of, of wealth. How do you make it? How do you put it out there and deal with it? Uh,
1: it's, a, it's a great question. Um, I think that one of the tragedies for people who have great wealth is their isolation. Uh, and um, it's, a, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things where you can't complain about having a lot of resource given what's going on in the world. But I think that there are there, there are tremendous um, problems for people who have great wealth. And the only thing that I can say to people is do everything possible to overcome that isolation. Um, I, and I think that means going out and seeing things yourself. And um, and then if you cannot or will not, uh, it's the thing I was talking about and it was almost a shorthand I couldn't really explain is the the disconnect I see between people who make decisions and where the knowledge rests. Um, and so and and I think that um, uh, the you either have to overcome it in your own heart and yourself or you have to have the wisdom to put the put the decision making in the hands of people who will. But. I, it is, it is nevertheless true that all those numbers I put up there are the result of growing inequity. It's the other side of it, and so all I can figure out is how do we turn that into a positive, and 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 help to help to create change from it. Um, but it's uh, um, there's a lot of people who look at the soul of money and the relationship of money to people's psychology and 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 um, and spirit. And all you can do is bear witness to that and help people and encourage people to uh, to go out in the world, as obviously you have.
0: Larry, what's your question?
4: Well, first sort of a comment, I guess, which is that uh, of all the tools that we have in in doing social activism, money is the least of those tools in my experience um, ideas passion uh, uh, sort of a, a magical belief in the impossible um, those are much more important than, than, than money um, I've watched the smallpox eradication program succeed I've been involved in the tsunami and in so many disasters that, that what what has I think what highlights the successes hasn't been the well-financed ones, the over-resourced ones. It's been the ones in which uh, the people who you were working side by side with had eyes that were ablaze and you felt like you were part of a team that was almost part of the the soldiers of light fighting against the soldiers of darkness. And and I guess that leads into my question, which is, you, you've described philanthropy and philanthropists almost like islands. And even in answering um, right now, you're, you talked about the loneliness of wealthians. That's what Wavy calls rich people, wealthians. You know, like Atlanteans, wealthians. <laughs> um, but, but the real, real strength is when all of us are together and we're in it together. So how, how do you perform that magic on the community of people with good hearts, strong hands, and good resources? How, how do all of us bring together the Gateses and the Rockefellers and the Googles and the Omidyars and the Scholes and focus our efforts on the crises of our time? And how do we protect ourselves from the the, kind of the dripping out, the drip, drip, drip out of not just the resources, but the energy and the excitement and the activism. How do we build a community of all of us, individual donors and philanthropists, the bigger philanthropists, how does that community set its mind as a single unity to solve the great problems of our times?
1: And he expects me to answer that question. <laughs> well, you've answered it yourself. I mean, by asking it you, that is the single when I said that it's about being connected and thinking long term. I, to me, the question is, how do you set the go- How do we set a goal? I mean, so it's a question, it's almost like, how can we, how can we get a campaign mentality? That what brings people together across, you know, from from many differences is a common goal, um, whether it's eradicate smallpox or, or something else. And so I think that the but the question is, that the problem is campaigns are short and a lot of this stuff has got to be long. And so I think that it's going to require some, you know, if if in fact the foundation was invented, you know, because your great grandfather couldn't figure out how to give all his money away his lifetime and said, in fact, we need to, you know, so he literally, they changed the laws and, you know, created the foundation for, them. maybe we need to figure out how to create some sort of vehicle that that is um, that serves the purpose of a campaign, but doesn't go away. So it's, it's something about every organization is making its strategy by itself. So Google makes its strategy and a mid-year, makes its strategy and Gates, makes its strategy. And the things that people do come together on is something where there's a common goal. And that's but I think the question you ask is exactly the, the one. And the reason I tried really hard in this talk to make this about all of us, not about just the people who, you know, the magazine covers are about.
0: Larry, well, I've got a question here that is part answer to that, I think it builds on what Catherine was saying. Um, Kevin Kelly is selecting the questions here, so this question happens to be from Kevin Kelly. (laughs) He probably eats the icing first, too. (laughs) Given the tremendous mountains of time energy poured into the creation and maintenance of Wikipedia. We had Jimmy Wales talking here a couple months ago, and he said the design of Wikipedia is the design of community. Would you call this enterprise new philanthropy? And what might it teach us about giving effort rather than money?
1: I would definitely call it new philanthropy. Yeah. Also, um, it's... Uh, the question is, is, what will people do that for? You mm-hmm. know, the great... I've been in a lot of conversations about open source philanthropy. Mm. Um, and, you know, that what is it that people will... You know, one of the great stories, and it's it's one of the... Thousands of things were in my notes that you'll be happy I didn't have, chance, have time to say, but you know one of the great stories after Katrina was the software engineers who came together voluntarily and figured. Remember how everybody was looking for their family and there was an NBC database and there was this. There were all these databases and the software engineers came together, to figure out how to put them all together so you could, you know, it, 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 so that you weren't having to, you know, go here and here and here and here and here. So the question is, so what is it that will that people will volunteer for.
0: There's a taxonomy we're starting to pay attention to here. Wikipedia has this quality that it scales, that it has this persistence, mm-hmm. it has this community, and it has mm-hmm. this focus. Uh, Burning Man is another one of these mm-hmm. phenomena that it seems to keep scaling and has this persistence and focus of community. Um, cities have this quality. They've been at it for 10,000 years, actually. And that may be, these are at least three answers. Of the kinds of things that have those two things you're looking at community and persistence
4: can, can I also add a little bit on that I, I'm not so sure Wikipedia is the right model I think Wikipedia is a great answer to a different question okay um, when when the, uh, when the tsunami hit I went to Intel and I tried to get them to build a big old matching engine so that anybody who wanted to donate time and had skills or donate money or donate resources could be matched with people in one of the countries that had suffered one kind of calamity. And I got frustrated and nobody was giving me the big matching system I want. So I I went myself to Indonesia and to Sri Lanka. But now that I've come back, I can tell you that there are at least a dozen such software systems that are being developed right now. Uh, Catherine talked about a couple of them, Give India being one of them. But there's a lot more, and they they really look a lot more like eBay Hmm. without the buying and selling. They're swapping and matching services. And wouldn't it be great if match.com didn't mean find sex online, but if match.com meant find a way to fill your heart with the generosity of spirit and find something that you could do that really made a big difference. And I, and I think I'm beginning to see some things like that. There's something called Kiva, where individuals can make small micro loans in the Grameen Bank model to projects that you've never met or heard about are very far away, and you, you literally would say, I want to find a woman with a bicycle repair shop in Kenya. And, wow, there's a woman with a bicycle repair shop in Kenya wants a $100 loan, and you directly make that microloan. I can see things like that arising that provide a way to take the entire power of the philanthropy for the rest of us and put it in service of those needs.
2: Stuart, can I please say something to that, too? This was one of the things I might have said about learnings, but I'll I'll put it in here. I think uh, for my money, so to speak. I I like the Wikipedia example because I think what makes Wikipedia work and last is that it is about reciprocity. If you put something in, you get something back. And I think that that's true about the microloans as well, by the way. It's not a one-way thing. Nobody's having charity done to them. And volunteer programs are notoriously short lived because people go in for a certain purpose. That there's a very close link between power relations and, and volunteerism and power relations and charity. People get what they need out of it, but they are not, but the people who have the charity done to them have no chance to give back. And the people who, get, who are who are doing the charity work fulfill that need and they move on to the next thing. There's a much deep. and by the way, Maimonides, what he did say was the highest good is to give without expectation of re- return. And it was he then in the in the middle ages who got us onto this track that in fact, we should be doing charity to other people. And he, it was useful in many respects, but it kind of got us off track from a deeper motivation and a longer lasting our, one that's instinctual built in, which is uh, not pure altruism, but reciprocity and community. I think what the, what our new technologies are able to do, money has removed its neutralized reciprocity in a way. You translate everything into money and it comes out on the other side with no human relation. You just pay the money and you get the object. I think we we are on the verge of having a new kind of currency that allows reciprocity through the through the technology itself and thereby reactivating the the motivations to be in reciprocal relationship. That's why in one way I asked about money, money itself has really dark sides to it. And what I hope is that philanthropy, maybe we won't call it that anymore, will be moving towards something that is much more reciprocal and moves us in a way that we can sustain. Mm
0: Okay, there's uh, two things. There's two themes that have uh, emerged in the questions I'm seeing, and, and um, the social sector, after all, is this sort of newcomer to what had been in the past all private sector and public sector, all government and business. And Paul Hawken, Paul Hawken in relation to the business end of it, asks, "Where are you, Paul?" I right you. Do you think it makes sense? To use business parlance, entrepreneur, markets, mutual funds, social profits, as a way to describe generosity and kindness, wouldn't it be more helpful if the metaphors went the other way? You mean that we were talking about kindness in business? Whoa. Do you want to?
1: Did you say there were some themes? Did you want to put a couple? That's the main one. That's the main one. Go ahead with that. The parlance
0: is. what you were noting and what we see here on the stage actually is that most of the money that's coming into the social sector is coming straight from business. It came with your great grandfather, it came with Carnegie, it's coming from Google. Uh, that's the, the, the heritage, the DNA, the lineage that comes with the money. And you pointed out that the, the new a lot of the new money is high tech money and, and certain things come with that.
1: Yeah. Well. It's a, it's, it is a great question, and it, it, I would love to have a conversation with you about that, Paul. It's, I have really struggled a lot with the language and metaphor systems here um, because I actually think the, 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 the big trend toward talking about philanthropy as investment is um, uh, it, it, it has the problem that you pointed out, but it also has the problem is it's not actually right. Um, I mean, it's actually you don't make an an investment for, a you know, it's it's, the metaphor actually doesn't work. My colleague, Andrew Blau, wrote a great paper that it's actually much more like the consumer relationship than it is um, than it is an investment relationship. Um, But but I will just tell you a brief story of I think it's also this whole thing. It's not just the language system, but the way we talk about philanthropy is very American. And um, one of the great moments in my life in the last 10 years and, and my journey to learn about all of this, I was in a room uh, with people, a bunch of people from around the world and there was this Italian guy and I was doing my American thing of, you know, philanthropy is, is something that's trying to make, you know, something happen in the world, right? It's, it's the strategic philanthropy. It's the, the frame in which I was talking and, and, um, and he just looked over me and said, that's bullshit. <laughs> he said, philanthropy is about saving my soul. Um, and it was just a very interesting, you know, <laughs> very interesting come up um, you know, it's, it's uh, so I, I, I think that it, it's, it's, uh, there is a, a, a great deal of energy around this language system because it does come out of business and it is something we should, we should uh, ask some questions about.
0: Okay, uh, another thing then is relation to public sector. And uh, basically, a lot of the slides that you showed in your video uh, had this kind of social justice uh, angle on them. And a lot of what you were talking about, Larry. Government, good government, has checks and balances in it. And the question here from several questioners, Chris, Greens is part, Chris Cruz sorry, is part of it, Cindy Cohn is part of it, Stuart Gantz is part of it, is is the philanthropic world, the social sector, part of the checks and balances of government, speaking truth to power and things like that? Does it have its own checks and balances? Business has all kinds of checks and balances, like fail and go out of business. Uh, where does all this fit together? I'll start with you, Catherine.
1: Um, I think, to me, there, there are two levels that that operates at. To me, civil society and the real actor, to me, is civil society with philanthropy as part of that and the support of that is is one of the only stalwarts we have against abuse of power by government. So to me, it's fundamentally part of the, um, part of the um, system. And in fact, I spent many years as a journalist, and I'm more and more concerned you know, in terms of what's happening to the media and press in this country. I think we in 10 or 20 years could be in a place where some of the traditional role that the media played uh, in terms of of um, holding government to account will no longer be played by the media will have to be played. Can by that the be fixed by ticket. philanthropy, by the way? What's that?
0: Can that be fixed by philanthropy? Business isn't helping much.
1: I, I think, you know, I have believed for a long time that some of the great journals in the future will be owned by and run by uh, nonprofits. And in fact, I tried to get one of my newspaper clients to sell their newspaper and set up a foundation to do that, but they didn't do that. Um, but but I think that the other part of the question is equally important. So, you know, in my belief system, civil society is, is a very much about uh, uh, speaking truth to power. Um, the problem is it's very hard to speak truth to philanthropy. Um, and uh, and it's it's I mean, anybody who's ever worked in the system or, or around it knows that that what I'm saying is true. Um, and there are no natural feedback loops in philanthropy. Um, and there are people who are trying to work on that in a variety of ways, but um, you know, the Center for Effective Philanthropy is just a very early uh, step of doing things like grantee surveys and giving ways to give blind feedback to, to foundations. Um, it's a small, it's a small step. Um, but in my thinking about this, I think that it really comes down to the. Um, that's so why I talked about the ethical system and enlarging the the empathy of the of the person. It, it's um, philanthropy is voluntary. If you pressure philanthropy, or if you set too many regulations in government and you set too many rules, people just say, "Fine, I'll just go away." You know. So I think it's a really complicated problem how we get philanthropy to be more accountable. Um, so.
0: Okay, yeah, that's part thoughts. of what the. Uh, the 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 rest of new philanthropy is going to need to solve because it's not in place yet. You're right. Do you guys have further on that direction? I just said
4: the the rest of the new philanthropy is even less accountable. Um, The old old philanthropy had time to create uh, expectations and expectations make actions accountable against historical precedents. The new philanthropy, because it's new and it has tried to evade the restrictions of the 501c3 or the foundations or the 5% rules or any of these other uh, strictures. It is is even more unbounded and more experimental and it'll be very interesting to see how it develops. Um, uh, But I do think that there's a a different kind of a, a check and balance, I guess, of sorts between philanthropy and government. Because I've always thought that the world was governed by God and anecdotes. (laughs) I mean, good stories, success stories. Uh, Once you've accomplished something, whether it is with a model in philanthropy or civil society, it's really hard to put that genie back in the bottle. Um, The reason that so many of us have fought against the war in Iraq and believed that we would ultimately win was because we saw the war in Vietnam stop. If we hadn't seen that and had that in the back of our minds or for the young people here in the backs of your history books, we, we wouldn't have the courage, I think, to fight against the government because in history, the people never fought against the governments that went to war. So the anecdotes will drive us and philanthropy and civil society give us the Martin Luther Kings and the Nelson Mandela's and they give us aspirational figures and goals and I hope that never stops. You got anything on that?
2: I uh, before I took over as chair of Rockefeller Brothers Fund which just happened quite recently I chaired a kind of an ad hoc committee on our accountability and and sort of quality control, whatever you want to call it within the organization. We looked at what other foundations had done. One of the things that was extraordinary to me was that Robert Wood Johnson, a very large Eastern foundation spent $20 million trying to do evaluation of their own program, an unbelievable amount of money. And when I looked at what, at what they learned I was unimpressed (laughs) Uh, a lot of it is what you if we sat around here for a few minutes and wrote down how we thought we would account for what we were doing in foundations we'd come up with it right off the bat Uh, and then you in the end when you go about scoring it you don't know what to do with the scores you can't maximize more than one independent variable. And so you come up with a lot of things that you think you should be doing and in the end of the day you don't you can't say and that's by the way why first of all why when business people get into it they think why it shouldn't be so complicated because they've been in a scoring system that has one independent variable and you can maximize it it's the bottom line but you can't do that when you get into philanthropy at all and so I with Saying all that, there's no point saying a whole lot more. I've thought about it a great deal. It's damned hard to get appropriate accountability within the foundation and the not-for-profit sector. And you have to keep trying because you can't not be accountable. But we don't have – so government has got God and anecdotes. I mean, that is what they thrive on. And the business community has got the bottom line. And we don't have anything (laughs) nearly so neat as any of those. So I don't know. That's great.
0: Well, that's the question. I'm going away from here tonight. We'll come down to the the last question though. Um, Catherine, your presentation, this is from Larry Hamill. Your presentation didn't have much about religious donations and how they work and what's going on there. You said, uh, I think you said it's declining a bit, but it's enormous. And just give us some of the kind of insight you gave about all the rest in, in about that domain if if you know
1: well, I think that um, it, it, like a lot of things it's it 's not one thing it's many things right so the money that is that that gets religion against it in the, in the reports and the tax codes, some of that money is, uh, goes to support tr- churches and synagogues and mosques. And um, that, to me, is the type of philanthropy that is really more about getting a tax deduction for funding your own community. Um, I mean, it's, it's a, uh, it, it, is of a, it is a community and it's of a benefit to you. Um, and then there is the type of money that goes in religious cause that goes out into the world and does many wonderful things. Um, and I think the, the evangelical community, for instance, have been very involved in the campaign on the genocide in Darfur. Um, and so I think that a lot of the religious money that is outside the, the more institutional supports falls, it, it, you have to look at, look at it like the other types of money that's trying to have an impact and is flowing in different ways. Have
0: yep, they separate um, separated out statistically?
1: You know, it, it's not that I, I'm sure that by, by various denominations and those, you, know, you could probably do it, but the money, the, the gross statistics that are available don't separate it out. Um, and then, of course, every church gives money. It would be very hard to, one of the things about philanthropy is it's unknowable. <laughs> right, you know, every time you think you you know something, I mean, it's thousands of institutions and th- actions all the time, you know, and so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very large uh, domain, as large as humanity itself.
0: Larry, you had something on that, it looked like, on the religious question, religious money. I mean, you, you've been out in a lot of the slums, and and there's a. A lot of really close to the ground church work going on there, kind the gospel Christians I, I can and Shiva folks
4: of, and whatnot. All sorts of uh, stories. Um, during the uh, tsunami, uh, Seva Foundation. There are many people here from Seva, We started receiving donations to work in Indonesia, and we sent. Uh, we tried to find the organizations to work with in Indonesia, and we finally found the absolute best organization to work with, and it was called Islamic Charities, Islamic mm-hmm. Relief of Indonesia. Uh, and we did send money to Islamic Relief of Indonesia. And, of course, that immediately brought the government looking at what we were doing because they had a search engine looking for anybody giving money to Islamic Relief. Anybody who's worked in Africa knows that the best, mm-hmm. the hardest working, and the most effective charity are done by the churches. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when I first came to Google, Google's got a, a program where nearly 2,000 nonprofits get free advertising and support raising money, and we give hundreds of millions of dollars a year to those organizations. But we're very concerned about the fungibility of that money if it goes to a uh, a religious organization. Does it go for the purpose of being religiously motivated relief, or does it go to the purpose of of conversions and for, for changes in religious? Um, but when you watch what happens in Africa, you you couldn't say, I'm not going to give any money to religious organizations, and yet I'm going to help support aid work in Africa. You would have a very small group of people to work with.
0: Richard, do you have a perspective on that?
2: Um, I'm not. I guess, so. I mean, what occurs to me is you're talking... It, I haven't thought about this before, but your uh, the quote from Stuart that you used earlier about not being able to see over the horizon of our death, which is why we don't take the future personally. I think that's one of the reasons that religious organizations can persist because they have a meme that allows them to see over that horizon and, and experience themselves there. Unfortunately, from my point of view as a rather enthusiastic atheist, It comes with a lot of virulence uh, and other stuff that that is not helpful. So what I'm pondering here is what can we do to substitute that long horizon meme with something that that isn't so. Well, whatever adjectives you want to put in there. But I don't know. I love
0: the concept of a rather enthusiastic atheist. especially given you know, what the word enthusiasm is made up, which is, is embracing a God.
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: as you all know, I, I write up summaries of these talks afterwards, and uh, Larry Hamill, the last asked question, said would I uh, put in at this time to, uh, a report on whether the contents of the donation box is any different with this talk. <laughs>